Well, I've seen, I'm sure you've seen the, the sad news stories before. A couple arrested after being found passed out in, in their car from a, from a heroin overdose with their three-year-old in the back seat. That was something recent. A woman convicted for child trafficking after she attempted to sell her child to a, to a federal agent for, for drugs to support her habit. Story about a man walking away from his wife and his family after 15 year plus addiction to alcohol and his wife gives him the ultimatum to either enter into treatment or she's going to, to leave him. She just can't put up with the, with the trauma and the turmoil anymore and, and he refuses and, and chooses alcohol over, over his wife and, and children. I can remember finding out several years ago, one of my best friends growing up, I had three guys that, that we were really, I was really close to. We used to stay over at each other's houses on the weekend, ride dirt bikes together, those kind of things. I can remember finding out my best friend was found dead by his father in, in his bed, having died of cardiac arrest from methamphetamines. I'd witnessed to him several times, and um, he always rejected, and to my knowledge, he, he died without Christ. The, the look on his father's face, just this, this numb, uh, dumbfounded, empty look is, is forever etched in my mind when Tracy and I went to the, went to the funeral. It, it was just the look of, of no hope himself and, and no hope of, of ever seeing his son again. Sad stories like that can be told over and over about, about substance abuse. It's, you, you see a lot of press about that today. But the most intoxicating, addictive element in the world is not heroin, it's not alcohol, it's not meth, it's spiritual pride. The fallen heart is predisposed to its draw and our our spiritual genetics are hardwired to its, uh, its attraction. And, and doing this drug doesn't fill the opioid receptors in the brain. It, it hardens the spiritual receptivity of the heart. Some of you are old enough to remember this, this campaign. Do you remember this back in the 80s? This is your drug on, this is your brain on drugs. That campaign for spiritual pride would, would be, this is your heart on, on legalism. The only cure for the, for the deadening sin of, of spiritual pride is conversion. And breaking the chains requires the tough love of intervention. Someone confronting you in the, in the midst of that. And that is exactly what we see happening in the Gospel of Mark and and we read last week's passage and this week's passage this morning because they both go together. They happen on the same day, one in the grain field and the other in the synagogue. And the point of contention is the, is the Sabbath. And Jesus has been on a collision course with the Pharisees and, and that conflict increases and ends with two confrontations. And as you, as you heard in the passage this morning, the conclusion of the matter is they sought to destroy Jesus. And last week we saw how 
adding to what the Bible commands is, is not only a reinterpretation of God's Word, it's a, it's a rejection of His authority. And when you place traditions over people, you miss the, the point of the Bible entirely. The people matter more than, than rules. That was, the, that was the theme. And it also puts you in conflict with God. And in our passage today, Jesus takes the conflict to the Pharisees. The Pharisees began questioning Jesus about his disciples plucking grain, and, and Jesus reveals the true intent of the Sabbath day. It, the Sabbath was, was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. And he, and he declares he is the Lord. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. He gives the sovereign interpretation of the Sabbath, and he declares his right as God to rule over it. He created the Sabbath, and he interprets how it's, it's applied, how it's lived out. And then later that day, while gathering in the synagogue, Jesus demonstrates that he is the Lord of the Sabbath. And he does that through healing a man and, and confronting the, the Pharisees. And the Pharisees seek to catch Jesus, and instead he takes jurisdiction over the day and initiates a confrontation with them and shows God's response to spiritual pride, and also shows us where, where a hard heart will, will lead you. This is a significant passage, because it's the only time in the Bible where the, the text specifically says that Jesus was angry. And you might think he was angry other times than he was. I think you could go the cleansing of the temples, when he goes in and he turns over the, the, the money changer tables. But, but this is the passage where it specifically says that Jesus was, was angry. So that in and of itself ought to, ought to cause us to pay attention. What was Jesus so angry about? What led the Holy Spirit of God to record that specifically in the Gospel of, of Mark? Well, we're going to see that today. So if you're not there, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 3, and we're going to be covering verses 1 through 6. And verse 1 Sets the, sets the stage, verses 1 and 2. Jesus is in the synagogue at Capernaum again, and, and knowing the hearts of the Pharisees, he, he sees a man with a withered hand, and he asks him to stand, and then he asks the Pharisees a question, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil? That's the question. He, he was questioned by them in the grain field, and, and now he's the one asking the question. And they have no answer. But the encounter reveals the, the pathology of spiritual drug addiction. And so the outline that, that I would give you this morning is a treatment plan for spiritual pride. And, and Jesus is, is the physician. He's the interventionist. And he also provides the, the prognosis. So you'll find this intervention in verses 1 and 2, this, this, this contest in verses 3 and 4, you have this, this confronting uh, assessment. And then you have this condemning prognosis in verses 5 and, and 6. Jesus gives a treatment plan for spiritual substance abuse and reveals the intoxicating danger of spiritual pride. Pride is the drug of choice for the human heart. It was there from the beginning... It was the original sin of Satan, and it's also what led Adam and Eve to rebel and, and reject God. Let's look at the, this, this contested uh, assessment or, or intervention in verses 1 and 2. 
Look at verse 1. He entered again into the synagogue, and a man was there whose, whose hand was, was, was withered. And they watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Now, Mark sets the stage and gives the, the, the context for the, for the contest. Jesus doesn't need an ultrasound or an echocardiogram to see their hearts. Uh, the Sabbath day provided the, the image for, for everyone to see. In the pharisaical system, the Sabbath was the, was the spiritual pride parade day. It was the pinnacle of their system. They had all kinds of rules. They, they had strict religious uh, traditions. They did that on every day, but the Sabbath was, was the day that they all came out in public view, and they did that at the synagogue. That was the place that they, they primarily gathered. This was the, the day that their, that their self-righteousness reached piercing clarity, as, as one commentator put it. It was their time to shine. And if you recall, we talked to at least the last two messages when we were, we're covering this topic of the Sabbath, and Mark labors this, this, this issue because it's so significant to the Pharisees and so significant to why they, why they tried to kill Jesus. You recall God instituted the Sabbath back in Genesis 2. It, and after he created the world on, in six days, on the, on the seventh day, he rested. It's not because God needs rest. God's not like us. He, he, he did that to set a pattern for us. And on the seventh day... He, he blessed that day and set it apart, and he, and he gives that command and that reason in Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through, through 11. He goes on in Exodus 31, but, but this, is the, this is the passage. This is part of the, the Ten Commandments. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all of your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that's in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it, made it holy. You're commanded to, to set this day apart because the Lord set this day apart. And then all the Bible says about the Sabbath, you can search the Scriptures. If you violate it, there's the penalty of death. But all the Bible says about the Sabbath is don't work. This is the day of the week you stop your work. You, you're commanded to work six days, and then on the seventh day you don't work. You're the one that decides what that looks like. There, there's no extra list beyond that. Whatever you do for work on that day, don't do it. It was that simple. Worship God, take a day of rest, and don't work. It's a, it's a day of rest. It's a day of recreation. It's a, it's a day of restoration. It's a day of worship. But the system that the Pharisees had created, the Sabbath gave them the opportunity to, to parade their self-righteousness. I mean, rather than gathering to hear the Word of God, they gathered to put their own righteousness on, on display. And, and, and we, we read some of those. They developed hundreds of rules and, and that they would adhere, adhere to and demand others would, would do the same thing. And they made the day of rest the most difficult and limiting day of the week. And it wasn't easy for them to keep. I mean, people watched them. Their system required serious, serious work to keep. And because you've read the New Testament and had the opportunity to sit under, 
under the New Testament preaching, when you hear the word Pharisee, you typically think wicked men, and, and, and they were wicked men. But, but you're, you're able to draw that conclusion because God reveals their hearts, but outwardly, they didn't look like wicked men. To the average Jew, they looked like really serious people. These were the these were the individuals that were really serious about their walk with God. I mean, look at all of these things that they that they didn't do, and all of these these extra things that that they did to try and express their 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 walk with God. They were the ones who looked ultra serious. They said no to sins of the flesh, like like lying and murder and lust, and outwardly they were blameless. You remember the Apostle Paul, before he was converted, said he was a Pharisee. And according to the law in Philippians 3, he said, I was blameless. There is no one that could bring a charge outwardly as they took the law and applied it to Paul's life. No one could bring a charge outwardly that the Apostle Paul missed any point of the law. Outwardly, he looked like a perfected Jew. And the Pharisees were, were the same way. They were like the rich young ruler who came to Jesus. And Jesus, knowing his heart, exposes his heart. But the rich young ruler said, all of these things I have kept from my youth. And he did outwardly. The problem was inwardly. And if you think about this system, I mean, we laugh about how ridiculous some of the regulations were. But think about how hard it was for them to keep that. And you say, how could an unsaved person keep all of those religious regulations and do that without the power of the Holy Spirit? These were unsaved, unregenerate people. They didn't have the Spirit of God living in them. Think about how hard and difficult it is for, for you to, to obey the Lord. I mean, the struggle is real, right, between the flesh. And you and I have the Spirit of God in our heart. How could they do that? Well, the answer is because spiritual pride is such a self-satisfying sin, it makes up for all that you have to forfeit. MacArthur said, spiritual pride is like an aphrodisiac. It's like a drug. Spiritual pride produces a high. Walking around in overtly spiritual pretense in the way you dress and the way you conduct yourselves and making outward pretenses, prayers, and acts is, is intoxicating. And that's what the Pharisees did. They found so much personal satisfaction in their spiritual pride that they were, they were willing to let these other behaviors go. And pride is a very powerful sin. And it also puts you in conflict with true spirituality. In this case... God. Look at verse 2. It says, they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. Now, Jesus has done nothing. He just shows up in the synagogue. And when he shows up, all eyes are on him. They're watching him intently. And they're watching to see if he would heal on the Sabbath. And, and the, the Bible tells us exactly what their purpose was. It wasn't so that they could rejoice. It was so that they might accuse him. They tried to catch him in an offense so that they could condemn him. In verse 3, Jesus, knowing this, says to a man with a withered hand, get up and come forward. And then he asks a question. Jesus didn't attack them on the, 
on the details of their interpretations. He didn't argue with them over the finer points of the law. His preaching, and in this case a live sermon illustration, applied the law to their hearts and they hated him for it. I mean, you could fool others, they could fool others outwardly, but they couldn't fool the Son of God. And what Jesus said to them was, you think you're right with God, I reject your assessment. He rejected their entire system that elevated human pride. And that was all they had, and he attacked it. And this is nothing new. The more religious an individual is, the more proud they are of their spiritual achievement, the more resistant they are to the gospel of grace. Think about your own conversion. The first step in salvation is God tearing down and removing whatever it is you're trusting in. In my life, God had to bring me to the point where, I've said before, I was flat on my back and I didn't have any place else to look but up. As long as I had something to, a crutch, as long as I had something to, to grasp hold of, I would hold on to that rather than turning to the Lord. Oh, I needed God, and I believed in heaven and hell, and yes, Jesus died on a cross and all of that stuff, but I'm a pretty good guy. I, I, just, I just drink a beer every now and then. I give the shirt off of my back to whoever. I, I mean, I don't murder. I don't do the really, really bad things. Of course, I've done few things wrong. And what God had to do for me and what He did for you is bring you to the point where you have nothing to cling to other than, other than to run to the cross. The people that responded to Jesus, the people that still respond to the gospel today, are the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the criminals. They don't have any spiritual pride. There's no barrier for them. They don't need to be, they don't need to be shown they need a Savior. They know they're in sin. And Jesus, when He calls this man up front, is is attacking their system, and they loathed him for it. Verse 3, he has this, this uh, confronting uh, assessment. Here's a man who had come to the synagogue to worship that day. Now, now, now think about this guy. I mean, here he comes to church. He's not expecting anything. He doesn't know Jesus is going to do this. He's got a lame hand. Mark doesn't use a specific term to tell us why. The word just literally means it was atrophied. It was paralyzed. It was, for some reason, he couldn't use it. And he shows up for church that day, and Jesus purposely calls him out. He calls him out of the crowd, and he asks him to come up forward. I mean, think about this. If if I would 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 name one of you this morning, and, and I don't know whether Jesus knew the guy or not, and said, you know, hey, come up here. Stand up in front of everybody. You'd be like, me? Uh, you want me to come up here? Yeah. Jesus was like, yeah, you. Come up here. And the man does. He, he, he obeys. And with the man standing there before everyone, as a sermon illustration, Jesus asked the Pharisees a question. Look at verse 4. Get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good? Or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life, or to kill. Now that would be important at the end of the sermon. But but he asks a question, and it says, "But they kept silent. They were attempting to accuse Jesus, but he turns the table, and he demonstrates 
what he declared in the grain field. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. I mean, he just totally takes control of the synagogue in this situation. I mean, they're watching him. There's been no conversation back and forth. Jesus knows what they're doing. And he says to this man, you, come up here. He stands up there, and then he addresses the entire crowd, obviously directed at the Pharisees, and he asks them this question, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to, to save life or to kill? As the Lord of the Sabbath, he had the right to do that. He had the right to ask that question. And then he demonstrates his, he's Lord of the Sabbath by, by healing the man. And the question that he asked strikes at the heart of the issue. They were so intoxicated by their own spiritual pride, they cared more for catching Jesus than they did this hurting man. They cared more for, for removing the one that was exposing them than, than actually keeping the Sabbath at that day. Now, based on the Pharisees' rules, you could help someone on the Sabbath, but only if it was life-threatening. A farmer could rescue a sheep out of a, out of, that had fallen into a pit if it was going to die. If they had reason to believe that if they left it there, it would die. If they couldn't treat an animal that was sick, only one that, I mean, if, if the sheep is going to be there tomorrow morning, if there's no danger, you leave the sheep there until the next day. A physician could stop someone's bleeding in a life-threatening situation, but he, but he, if he could treat the injury the next day, then they were supposed to wait. That was the rules that the Pharisees made. Jesus purposely chooses this man. This man is lame in his hand. That's not a life-threatening situation. And he purposely chooses him to break the rules and expose how ridiculous the, the error was. This wasn't some random guy. Jesus specifically picks the man to assault their system. And Mark says after he asked the question, they were silent, but, but Jesus was not. And he gives the, this condemning prognosis. Look at verse 5. This is really where the, where the sermon gets convicting. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at the hardness of their heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him, kill him. And this is in chapter 3 of the Gospel of Mark. He's not even out of Galilee yet, and they're already trying to kill him. He purposely chooses this man... And it says, it, 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 Jesus not only exposes their hearts, but that he shares with us what is in his heart. There is anger and grief. He knows their intentions. And he knows the hardness of their heart. And Jesus expresses anger mingled with grief. I told you this is the only time where the Bible specifically says that Jesus got angry. And that alone ought to make us pay attention. What makes God angry? Well, the Bible says there's a number of things that, that, that the Lord repudiates. Proverbs gives a, gives a list of those things that the Lord hates. 
pride and those that sow discord among the brethren and a number of other things that are there. But, but here God is angry. What's He angry at? He's angry at their concern for the letter of the law while they forgot the spirit of the law, which is mercy. They become calloused both to the purposes of God. These are the rep- supposedly representatives of God. They were representing God to the world and to everyone else, and they were doing so forgetting God's purposes altogether, and, and they were also calloused to the sufferings of this, of this man. Notice that he was angry and grieved at the same time. I think this is one of the clear statements in the Bible about God's response to obstinate unbelief. He's angry at their unbelief and rejection, and yet he's sad or grieved over the condemnation that's, that's going to come. God is angered by the sin, but He takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And that's what's coming upon them. And that's exactly why Jesus is confronting them, because He knows where they're going to end up. I mean, think about the question that He asks. Look at the question. Is it lawful to do good, and He's going to show what that means by this man, or to do harm on the Sabbath? Is it, is it lawful to save or kill? And Jesus heals this man, does good to this man, and they end the day on the Sabbath plotting to kill Jesus. He knows their heart. He knows where they're going. He willingly laid his life down. He knew what he was walking into. He knew that what, what he was doing with this confrontation. It was purposeful. He chooses the man on purpose. He chooses the, the situation on purpose. He chooses the question on purpose. Because he's both angry at what they're perpetrating on everyone else, and he's also grieved about their, about their condition. And after that, he heals the man, demonstrating what the law meant to do good and to preserve life. I mean, Jesus delivers both the man, and as the Lord of the Sabbath, he delivers the Sabbath. He delivers the Sabbath from their regulations, and he delivers the man from disease. And he also defines the root cause of pride. Notice what it says in verse 5. After looking around at them with anger. Can you imagine those piercing eyes? We talk a lot about what Jesus said from the cross. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Forgiving eyes. Here, Christ's angry eyes. And grieved. And the anger and the grief was based on the hardness of of their hearts. Jesus defines the root cause of why they're responding this way, why they set up the system, why they're looking to kill him, why they're trying to catch him, why they were oblivious to this this man who was there hurting. It was their hardness of heart. You ever wondered how a person can get so deep in sin, so far away from God? Well, this this is why. The heart gets hard, and it doesn't happen in a one-time rejection. If you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, the gospel is being proclaimed to you. Don't, don't fool yourself to think that you may have another opportunity, or it's just it's really that it's really no big deal to reject the gospel today. Because every single time you reject the word, as a believer or an unbeliever, your heart gets gets harder and harder. And every time you, you reject, you, you, your ears get duller and duller, and God increases His pursuit, and He turns up the volume, and, 
And each time you reject, his voice grows harder to hear, and finally you become spiritually deaf. The only remedy is for, for God to intervene in some way and give ears to hear again. Look at how they responded. Look at their choice in verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. Now, what did Jesus do? What did he do worthy of death? He, he heals a man. He does good to a man. He's done nothing evil his, his entire time that he's, that he's been in Galilee. He's done nothing wrong whatsoever, and yet... They pooled with other people that thought like them, and then they plotted. Notice what it says. They went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians. They pooled with others that, that had something to lose by the gospel. And then they plotted together how they might, they might destroy him. And when you're confronted with truth... And, you refuse to hear, you, you, you typically go out and try to find others who agree with you. You form an echo chamber. I heard a, a man remind me about a company this past week. They, they write their own press, read their own press, and start believing their own press. That's what they did. They found others. They also plotted. They plotted to remove the conviction by removing the one who told them the truth. They, they found others who would agree with them rather than yielding to God, and then they sought to destroy Jesus instead of giving up their sin. And hard hearts move from emotion to action. Now they're not just frustrated by Jesus. Now they're not just confronting Jesus. They're, they're actively plotting to remove Jesus. And if you won't hear the message, eventually you'll, you'll try to remove the messenger. You'll flee a relationship. You'll, you'll leave a church. You'll, you'll attack the one who tells you the truth. Now, now think about this. Rather than repent... They give up their spiritual pride. They sought to kill. That's how strong the commitment was to their system. That's how intoxicating spiritual pride can be. And as I said, think of the irony. Jesus answers the question of what's permitted on the Sabbath by healing a man, and the guardians of the Sabbath determined to do harm and kill on the same Sabbath day. They plotted against Jesus rather than repent. It's really not complicated. The Word of God has, when you're confronted by God, there, there are two responses. That's right. You reject His Word and grow more calloused, or you repent. Faith or fury, hardness or conviction. And how you choose to respond is up to you. Jesus demonstrates He's Lord of the Sabbath. He takes control, he asks the man to stand, asks the question, expresses anger and grief, shows them what the law meant by doing good and healing the man, and they respond in more hardness. And we all have the same choice when we're confronted by God. How can I tell if my heart is in danger of growing hard? When you... When you pull this passage apart, there are four things that you see the Pharisees doing. Jesus has already given the diagnosis. It's the hardness of their heart. That's the reason he's angry, the reason he's grieved. And you find them doing four things. They're evaluating, they're accusing, they pulled with others, and then they plotted. 
There's the four things that the Pharisees do in this passage. They watched Jesus intently. They looked at how they could accuse Him. They held counsel with others who were like-minded, and they plotted to, to destroy Him. Thank you to apply this. Take this heart test. I did it. And I'll warn you ahead of time, it's just not pleasant. Test number one, you regularly evaluate others. All of these come specifically from what the Pharisees did, where Jesus clearly says this is their condition, hardness of heart. You regularly evaluate others. It's natural for you to size up others based on your own convictions. If you, you do, it's a, it's a sign you care more about rules than people. The only litmus test that we have is, is the gospel. It doesn't mean that you don't have convictions. You should. But, but you find that it's easy for you to regularly evaluate others based upon how you're working the angles. That's test one. Test two, you find it difficult not to judge others. Now, I know how the world uses the word judge. It means don't draw any conclusions. That's not how the Bible uses the word. You're called to, to discern. You're called to draw conclusions. That's not the problem. The problem is sitting in a seat of condemnation once the conclusion is drawn. Your evaluation leads to comparison. And comparison leads to conclusions about their spirituality. You're in a constant state of sizing other people up. So the Pharisees did. Your conversations with others are typically about others. Wasn't that point that AJ made last week so convicting when he said, if you would evaluate your prayer life from the week before, would you be any different or would the world be any different? Your conversations, are they typically filled with, with God, the grace of God, and what God is doing in other people, what God's doing in your life, or are those conversations typically about how others are failing or how they're not? Or did you see? Did you know? Your primary friendships are with people who are like you, and you, you regularly talk about those who are not. Did you know Joe and Marcy think it's okay to let their kids date? They don't believe it's a problem to do X or, or Y. That's what they did with the Herodians. And finally, you attack others who don't measure up to your standards. It can be in a number of different ways. I'm not saying that I'm going to plot to kill you or you're going to plot to kill me. We typically don't do that physically, but, but we do engage in character assassination. We do tear other people down that we've evaluated and they don't measure up and you find other people who are in the echo chamber with you going, yeah, yeah, and then you act on that. That can be verbally, it can be on social media, it can be other ways. It's called character assassination and it's sin. I told you it was a hard test. So what can you do about it? The prideful heart begins with me 
hear thoughts and beliefs of pride. My opinion is better. I am right. I am self-made. I am worthy of honor. I don't deserve this. I deserve better. I don't need anyone, including God, to help me. Those are the kind of questions that come from a, a beliefs about pride and the results, sorrow, self-pity, anger, bitterness, envy, jealousy, and the hard heart toward, toward God. What do you do about that? What can I do about a hard heart? The first is probably the most difficult. Humble yourself. God gives grace to the humble, the Bible says. It's the fire extinguisher to the smoldering fire of pride. And it's a choice. Listen to what God says. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. It's not something that's done to you. It's something you choose to do. You humble yourself. You humble yourself. It means to acknowledge. It means to, to, to bow low under whatever it is that God's bringing to bear in your life or whatever he's telling you through the word it it may, it, it may include going to the prayer room it may include telling someone you can see you're proud and hardened heart uh, that's the first step and yes it's embarrassing that's the whole point of humility we must say yeah i'll do it but i want to make sure that i look as good as possible the whole point of humility is to say it's me i, I see it Secondly, pray God will give you ears to hear. The hardness of heart dulls our spiritual ears. And so you, you might even be in a condition where you can't even hear. So you know what to do. God's voice is, is not as easily heard in His Word as it was before. And Jesus said, He who has ears, let him hear. Pray that God will give you spiritual ears. Search for the root. The fourth thing I would say, search yourself. Search me, O God, and know my ways. Try me. Pray to search and see if you can discern what the root is. You'll probably find some hurt or some moment when you felt like you didn't get what you, what you deserved. And rather than remembering that we deserve hell and have received nothing but grace... You'll probably find that you felt like God let you down or somebody else let you down. Find out whatever that was and confess it. Put the axe to the root. And then finally, let go of, of whatever you find. Hardness will, will not only lead you to assassinate others, it'll, it'll kill you. Don't give your pride that kind of power over you. You're, you're hurting yourself, not God. You can hurt others. But just like this lame man, the Lord can intervene on their behalf, but He can't intervene on your behalf if there's pride in a, a hardened heart. His only response is anger and grief. He's angry at the sin, and yet He's grieved because of what eventually will come.